Hi, this is Tamsin Gringer. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Sunday, June 12th, 2022. You're right so far. Okay. Yeah. Um, Happy Flag Day. Not today, the 14th. Really? Yeah. Lots of big things coming up. Uh, Tony's around tonight. Mm -hmm. Are we watching that or not? Uh, I don't know. I have the information. I mean, there's a pre-Tonys, which they give those some awards and do some performances. And then the Tonys themselves start at eight. Um, it might be interesting seeing some performances. I don't know. Um, what do you think? Uh, the award shows bore me to tears. Right. So we don't have to watch I'm, it. I'm reluctant, but, you know, whatever. We'll see. The Mets are on. <clears throat> you can always watch the Mets. Oh, the Mets. They're on uh, starting yeah, at 7. The Mets, never boring. Never boring. Yeah. Always on the edge of our seats yes. with the Mets. Well, so there we go. We have a good choice there. So we had a busy week. Yes, we did. So we went to, we went to the theater. We went to the city. Yes. Went to the Big Apple. Well, that's true. We went to the Big Apple. Yes. And we decided while we were there, mm-hmm. we would go to the theater. Right. And kicking and screaming, you dragged me to Girl from the North Country. Well, you were kicking and screaming. I wasn't. It was my idea. It was your idea. I was kicking and screaming. And um, for those, for the uninitiated, yes. it's a musical that involves songs by Bob Dylan. Right. Robert Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. Otherwise known. Um, and I'm just not a big Dylan fan. Right. I don't hate him. But it just, uh, I was pretty sure that it was going to be a boring couple of hours in front of a folk singer. But, let's get to the but. It was terrific. It was With terrific. a capital T. It was terrific. It yeah. was unbelievably good. Yeah, so it's uh, what they do uh, in jukebox musicals is they often uh, weave together songs into a story. And they did that here, although I hesitate to call this a jukebox musical, maybe because it was so effective. But uh, the story is, it takes place in a 1934 boarding house in which there are a bunch of folks who were pretty much down in their luck, as many people were in 1934, post-1929 crash. Takes place in Minnesota. Uh, there are different stories going on. I don't think we have to tell you every character's story, but it kind of holds together. Uh, and the songs uh, really resonate. I mean, they really resonate. The story sort of moves in a way that there is a, um, you know, it, it's, it, it works very well with the music. Uh, and they, they sort of augment each other. Uh, the music punctuates the story. The story sort of underscores uh, sort of a poignancy in the music, and uh, it's pretty fantastic, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I you know I don't lose sleep about the plot, right? You know, uh, lots of things that sound interesting are not. This was just very compelling, and it had a great cast. Mm-hmm. And uh, you probably know who was in the cast better than I do. And uh, the way the music was arranged mm-hmm. was. You know, many of the the choral arrangements were really gospel oriented, right? More than anything, and of course, I love gospel music, so that was going to uh, uh, resonate with me. And, and uh, you know, it was it was a little bit on the dark side. It's not a you know happy ending, feel good kind of a show with a lot of razzmatazz, uh, but it was, I would say. 
moving and uh, just, um, I don't know, I guess life-affirming in other ways rather than... Yeah, I thought it was deeply spiritual. I mean, the, the play itself, uh, and I think it's fair calling it a play, uh, it was by Connor McPherson, who's a renowned playwright. Uh, and I went through a bunch of reviews uh, to get the critical reaction. And, and, and a lot of the reviews are from London because it started in London in 2017. The funny thing is it got to New York. Uh, it was in the public theater uh, of 2018, which I didn't realize. And then it went and opened Broadway. And when did it open in Broadway? March 2020. <laughs> Talk about timing. It ran yeah. seven performances and then it was off because of COVID. And it's been on again, off again, on again, off again. And, uh, you know, I think Mayor Winningham is the one who's, who's nominated for a Tony tonight in terms of outstanding performances. Uh, and, and yet, for a play that's been around for a long time, it's odd that it's, now it's being considered for a Tony. And I should also mention it's closing on the 19th of June. So you got to move. you got to move fast if you want to see it. I, I won't read the many reviews. I'll just mention uh, one just because it's short. This is a review from the Financial Times of all places in London, which I think I agree with about the play. It, it's original, beautiful, and moving, combining the starkness of Steinbeck with haunting lyricism to create something restless, desperate, hopeful, and sad. I think that's a fair description. But I also wanted to read one other reaction, and that's uh, the reaction from Bob Dylan himself who uh, came to see the production on Broadway. He only got to see it once before it was closed down because of COVID. And he said, I've seen it, and it affected me. I saw it as an anonymous spectator, not as someone who had anything to do with it. I just let it happen. The play had me crying at the end. I can't even say why. When the curtain came down, I was stunned. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. It was really good. Uh, and, and I have to say, it was uh, it was everything people were asking for this year in terms of uh, diversity of the cast, mm-hmm. etc. And well, you know, it's diversity of cast in a more meaningful way than a lot. It's not like it was a colorblind casting situation. It was the characters represented a, a broad array of an American population, and those characters, you know, it was about their plights, about their roles. It was it, it really struck home. So I would have thought it would uh, be having a much longer run. Um, I, but I think... The up and I, down of it is tough. Yeah. The up and down of it is tough. And I think a lot of people are like me. They just uh, don't think they'll be interested. Well, listen, um, it's, been a bu- it's, but, it's, it's had several productions by now. I think a bunch of people have seen it too. So uh, it's there you go. Magnificent. Yeah. All right. Uh, you have a short chance to see it go. Um, Girl from the North Country. Right. Okay, so we both got uh, were struck by an article in the journal about the national anthem, which kind of caught you know, me Before we go on, we should say yeah. the reason we were in New York was to, because we had the prospect of running into Pepper. Oh, so it was not the prospect of running into we Pepper were, we, and her family. We were, were there to in, take care of Pepper. We're in New York. Yes, yes. And so uh, we got to interact with Pepper. We got the opportunity to take Pepper to the Central Park Zoo. There's nothing more fun than taking a kid to the zoo. Well, first of all, a kid. What is she, 15 months? No, she's 21 months. She's 21 months? All right. Oh, she's growing up very fast. And um, it's just to to see the delight um, in... In having seen real animals, it's well, just yeah, she's, terrific. She's in the high pitched voice reaction, no words really yet, but she can repeat every word you give her. Yeah, and you'd say puffin, she go puffin, 
<laughs> yes. She was on top of things. So that was fun. And we also, I also took her to um, the Metropolitan Museum. Yeah. Uh, to see the Knights in Armor because she has a favorite book that has knights mm-hmm. in it. And, and uh, Did she make that connection? I don't know if she made that connection, to be honest, to my great disappointment. But she was delighted with the horsies Mm -hmm. in the armor. She definitely was delighted. And she was delighted with the hugeness of all these crazy objects in the Met, the sculptures. We we arrived on the elevator near the Greek and Roman uh, galleries. And, uh, you know, she was just wide-eyed. And she saw her first, she saw stained glass windows because you're going through the medieval section to get to Arms and Armor. And um, she was quite charmed mm-hmm. by stained glass windows. And uh, so, you know, that warmed the cockles of my heart. Um, and, uh, you know, then outside the Met, just inside of Central Park, is a terrific sort of toddler's playground mm-hmm. uh, that she had quite a good time in. Yeah. You know, had wonderful sort of water-misting machines, mm-hmm. which... We're great on a hot day, so uh, that that was a good uh, good well, interaction. She also liked the horses in Central with, Park, so she's consistent in that way. Yeah, she you know who doesn't like Central Park? Yeah, I mean, so good for Pepper. We hope she comes back again. <laughs> I think she will. Uh, anyway, so there was a great article in the Wall Street Journal this weekend about the national anthem. Okay which um, was fun to read because it turns out, now maybe every student of musical history already knows this, but I had no idea. The National Anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, um, the lyrics were written by... Francis Scott Key. You knew Francis that. Scott Key. And hesitating for effect, I mean, but yes. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, but the music... Whoever thought about the music except to kind of hate it? No, no, no. I, I assumed he wrote the music. And it is a big steal that he didn't write the music. All he wrote were the words, which strikes me as a very limited uh, creative accomplishment, to be perfectly frank. Except and- that it was typical for the time. Here's the interesting thing. Yeah. All right. So he's writing this in um, the early 19th century. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, the thing is, in general, even... It, Actually, I guess we should say before that even in early America. Yeah. Okay. Songs could be shared as sheet music, but engraving music notation required expensive, skilled, and time-consuming labor. Okay. Printing words could easily be done by movable type and was cheap. Yeah. So this is what people did. They used a couple of tunes and just made different lyrics right. to all these they, different tunes. They used traditional songs right. and, and they were traditional melodies and they put words to that. Now, first well, of all, let me pause right there. Not even traditional, popular. Okay, they just, fine, you, fine. It, traditional No one popular. was worried about, you know, Copyright. Yeah, the creative... Uh, right. No one was writing songs, but, but yeah. music. But here's my thing here. First yeah. of all, did you know that? Because I didn't know that. No, I didn't know that. Right. So I'm I, reading this article that says that's what everybody did. They only, uh, they put the words to other melodies. Go, right. Really? Right. Really? That's the way it worked? And, and that's what he did the, this here. This one was based on, on a song that was used a lot for political type yeah. of, you know, right. fun songs. And, and the uh, name of it and is... And it, 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 uh, it was the club anthem 
for a society in London mm-hmm. called the Anacreonic. Yeah, it, it's, it's Anacreontic it's, society. It's anacreonic. Okay? Anacreonic. anacreonic. Yeah. You you looked it up. Yeah. Uh, anacreon, the Greek poet, was known for writing about the rich pleasures of daily life, love, wine, youth, beauty, revelry. So there was a club to celebrate these things. Right, so they had this song, right? In in the in, in London, seventeen sixties, right? Seventeen seventies. But what? Go ahead. Somebody wrote a song and set it to music, and yeah. it's their anthem, and it immediately becomes very popular, right? Okay, and is used by many people, you know. And this is in London to right. you know write parodies of it, okay. But it's a song that was written to be sung by a professional, okay, right. to highlight the soloist's vocal talent. It's right? a difficult melody. It's difficult to sing, to sing meant and, for professionals. And it's now, meant the, to be difficult to the sing. The song traveled all over, right. okay? It was in a lot of traveling shows, you know, um, road, road shows in the U.S. Right. So it was known, okay? It and Yankee Doodle. Were two the two melodies that were very often used for people to write, uh, you know, um, sort of political satire songs. Okay, the the Yankee Doodle satires uh, were usually more funny be- because of the long, you know, sort of stanzas of the uh, anacreontic mm-hmm. anthem. You could get more complex thoughts, political thoughts in, or whatever, whatever. Anyway, it was popular. So, um, actually, so in 1804 is the first time Francis Scott Key uses that melody to write a song. And this time, that time it's uh, in tribute to Stephen uh, Decatur Jr. and uh, his success uh, um, during the... 1803, 18, yeah, some, some kind of military yeah, invention. Yeah, okay. And, yeah, um, so that doesn't catch on. So right. then, then, he, then he comes up with a star-spangled Maybe it did catch on. We don't know. No, but anyway, the War of 1812, yeah. um, to uh, celebrate, it, was it done for a specific occasion or he just off? He just well, it doesn't make any difference. It. The fact is he's he, doing it. He writes this new version celebrating the... Okay. Um, here, here's, here's, here's my problem. American okay. defense of Baltimore's Fort McHenry. Right. Right. Okay. So here you have, uh, you know, I just figured that uh, the tune and the words came together. And you couldn't really criticize the tune because it was a piece. And that was that. But but the music no, was... but also mu- I just assumed. Yeah. That's the way people used to sing. No. And I everybody used that. to sing that way. I never know. I never I, assumed yeah, that from No, yeah. no, no. No one sings like that. So, uh, but well, look, let me put it this way: I, I, I never, I, I just assumed that it was either take it or leave it with this, and uh, and yet what you have instead is a borrowed tune. You have some words Scott Key throws together about an obscure battle in what was never really, you know, in the top five American wars. Why is it about a war to begin with? Who even knows? Who even cares? Either we're not worried about any of this. No, I'm worried about all of it. No, you're Why not. Why <laughs> is this the national anthem? Well, that's a whole different question. It's not a whole different it's question. It's a whole different no, question. No, no. Yeah, this, first this... of all, don't lose sleep about borrowing melodies, okay? I'm not losing sleep. It happens throughout Why the history of music. Why is this the national right? anthem? I can't think of a reason. Anyway, I'm not interested in that discussion. What I am interested in, yeah. and I never really, I was never too inspired by it, yeah. except yeah. up until yeah. this year's 
Um, Stanley Cup playoffs. So you Stanley see the Cup Rangers playoffs. and the guy comes out and he sings the song. We, you know, we accidentally right. turned on one of the games, one well, of the we, Ranger games, early enough. Daniel, most of the times we were saying, well, is there a Ranger game tonight? Yeah, and we're there after the right. second interval or something. Right. One night, we managed to turn it on before it started. Yeah. And lo and behold, somebody's about to sing the national right. anthem. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, you know, All right. uh, can I go get another so snack? I know who it is. You know, you know should I is? not be here? But, right. you know, what else can I do while this is going on? Yeah. But nonetheless, I'm sitting there, I hear it, and it was unbelievable. Right. Brought tears to your eyes. Right. Had me giving John Brancy, right. baritone, born in Upper Darby, PA, yeah. a Grammy winner, um, I gave him a standing ovation in my living room. Okay. You know, I, it, I'm serious. So this makes two so points. First of all. Good. The audience went crazy. Yes. Okay? And he did it a cappella. Uh, just a normal, right. everyday, So what does it you know, tell you? What does it tell semi-drunk you? Semi-drunk hockey audience. <laughs> They're not drunk. It's the beginning of the game. They're not cheering drunk the for yeah. the national anthem, the okay. Star Spring. It's a Grand. stirring song when you have a professional singer and a real professional singer who works with Met Opera do the song. But that's the point. It was always set it up was as a song. for that kind of voice. It was written it was for written professionals for to sing it. And instead, what you have is a bunch of people stumbling through it. Look, the other thing about hockey is when the game is played in Canada, they do O Canada. They do both, both national anthems. Okay? And that's a song people can sing. And that's a song that you see the fans in Edmonton and Toronto and in Montreal belting out. Uh... But uh, John so Brancy, yes. John Brancy, he's my hero. Actually, there, there's a guy who sang the song. Uh, it's a Greek name I can't remember right now. For many years, for the Rangers, he passed away recently. So there's I've a, heard other people. There's sing a tradition it. to have heard, a, a, an opera. No, I've heard fancy song. people sing it. Fancy people, yes. You know, and uh, it still wasn't too compelling. Something about what he brought to this anthem. It, it was great. Look, but the it's song just... can be great if you have a professional singer. That's the point. And that, but the converse of that is, if the song is not great, absent professional singer, what's the compelling reason to make that the national anthem? I still don't know. Mystery to me. Uh, you know, default to God bless America. I don't know. Is it, God is it bless important? America. Is it important to a national anthem? Does it represent something in and of itself, or does it have to be a good sing-along song? I don't know. I think these are all horrible. First of all, I've never understood why they sing national anthems at sport events to begin with, so I'm totally lost. But uh, putting that aside, um, why is it about a battle? Why is it about a war? So the song, again, and this goes to hockey, God Bless America. Hockey's a battle. Famously, God Bless America, sung by Kate Smith before every Philadelphia game for years and years and years. Um but also more broadly, maybe should be a national anthem written by Irving Berlin, wrote the words and the music. It's simple. That's good, unless you are not a believer in God. Well, uh, I'm sure this must be something about God and the national anthem. Uh, but in any event, uh, I'll think about that. Okay, so... Uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what a national anthem is. Yeah. But when John Brancy sang this... <laughs> I had a glimmer of an intuition. All right. Good enough. Uh, Okay. So there was was an article about uh, swimming in the science section. And, 
you know, we could talk about the article, but the truth is, between you and me, we don't think much of the article. It was kind of giving some advice about how you can get into swimming. And by the sixth paragraph, they had you training for the master's swim program by doing an impossible set of yeah, sprints is, and yeah, whatever. This is a, another one of the billion articles that say, um, take this up. It's yeah. easy to do. It'll change your life. And then their recommendations uh, are beyond the pale. Unrealistic. 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 And they, you know, they skip about eleven steps. It's gonna it's gonna take you like forty hours a week right. to achieve what you know at the beginning of the article right. they were saying it can be easily done a few minutes a day. Yeah, they start with here's how you might get across the pool for a single lap and toward the end you can get into the following masters programs. And I go like, Oh my god. And fortunately the comments written in online were pretty funny and most people were saying, Yeah, it doesn't work like that, okay? Well, well, it doesn't. But but you and I have some experience swimming. You're an excellent swimmer. I'm not a very good swimmer. Notwithstanding that I'm extremely athletic, I think we'd like to agree. But that said, why am I not a better swimmer? And you said to me, you know, if you're really interested in technique, and the Times did hint a little at technique, but only hinted, what was the name of the... Uh... Well, one guy wrote in and said, uh, the best way to learn swimming is to look at some of these videos, including... The one by Total Immersion. Right. I looked at Total Immersion on YouTube. And I looked at some of their, and then they're quite interesting. And as you had uh, previewed to me, they're not entirely intuitive, which is all to the good. What they're saying is you can do something that's a little easier than what you're doing and get better results. So it's rained every day since uh, I got to see the video. So I haven't been out there yet, but I know uh, we'll be charting my progress. And I'll be in those master swimmer programs uh, before you know it. The point is, even if you swim five or ten minutes once a week, it will change your life. All right. Okay? And uh, a lot of it is physiological Mm -hmm. because of the breathing. Mm -hmm. And it's the breathing that really will enhance your health. Right. The, The regulated... The measured breathing, not very different from yoga, mm-hmm. okay, um, and using every muscle in your body, mm-hmm. okay, and all of this adds up to, I think, tremendous benefits for mental and physical right. health. Listen, I but can... it, you don't need to be a master swimmer, right. and you don't need to do it, you know, three and a half miles a week or right. anything like that. All right. All right. Just Listen, take I'm, a dip. I'm going to stick with it. So um, there's an article about traffic, which was kind of interesting in the journal. Sounds like a not interesting subject, but here's the way they introduce it. You're zipping along the road and your GPS shows the road ahead turning yellow and then red. And you're saying it's an accident or it's construction. But when you get to the red spot, the traffic slows to a halt, but there's no accident, no construction, no apparent reason. Traffic had stopped and now it speeds up. What is going on? And the answer is, you're in what's called a jamaton. A jamaton, Tenzin. A jamaton. And what happens, what is a jamaton? A jamaton is when the traffic's flowing along, and then for no particular reason, uh, or the most mundane of reasons, it stops a little bit because someone tries to get into a lane and there's some fumbling around that or there's someone has to slam on the brakes. They're not let in or they're let in and it's unexpected and people have to break. And strangely, when people have to break in mundane situations like this, it sets off what's the equivalent of a shockwave through the traffic behind with everybody having to break a little bit. And that 
slows down the traffic. All right. So how do you not do that? Well, there is a solution. But first of all, it is kind of amazing to me. I thought it's inconsequential because you're only going to go as fast as you can go. But no, it does literally slow the traffic. And it is what causes traffic problems, these little jam situations. What's the solution? The solution is that people are driving when it's congested too fast. To put another way, if they were to slow down in a congested time, you would avoid these situations and you would actually get to your destination faster. In other words, if you're in a road that generally speaking, it would be nice if everyone got 165, no problem. But if you have a high congestion situation and it's ripe with the, the risk that people are going to have these little jam situations, if you slow down the speed limit at those times, then in fact you can avoid these little jamatons and everyone will get to so the So is anybody doing that? Uh, there's a way to fix it. Here's the answer. The answer is LED speed limits. In other words, speed limits that are based on electronic signs that become local reacting. Right. Is to the anybody traffic. doing yes, it? Yes, people are doing it. And where? See, you know, I don't know what cities they're doing it, but they're starting to do it. Uh, Detroit, they're doing it. Um, it's called variable speed limits. Well, and that's interesting. It is interesting, but uh, you know, it's like anything else. People are asking, is it worth the cost? Um, uh, that's what they're arguing. And I think the answer, according to this particular writer, the only name, uh, Josh Zumrin, is uh, most, of the, uh, most of the conclusions are it is worth the cost. This is, there, there's a standard uh, skepticism about putting in measures, traffic control measures, because are they, they're going to cost a lot and they won't necessarily get results. This should get results. And if you had speed you limits that were variable. You see, signs all over the place. It's not a matter of signs. It has to be an electronic sign that's variable. I know you see that on the turnpike a little bit. Yeah. So when the turnpike says 45, they're doing something a little different. Usually they're saying it's terribly foggy or something like that. They're reacting to weather conditions. But they say based on congestion, you can change the speed limits and speed up the flow of traffic that way. So there you go. I just like the word jamaton, actually. Um, um, so Maybe they could just have it. What if they had uh, on a regular basis, you know, like between yeah. 7 and 9, yeah. the... They could Speed limit is X. They could. And they, they don't could. have to have a very variable sign. All right. You can write in and get that done. But then get one of those kids with the sign you just hold up. Yes. They get one, one of those just take kids. a bus, drop out people every once in a while. They hold up the sign, go back, pick them up at the end of the... Yeah. All right. Uh, all right. Very as, good. Look, as many as 15 states have now variable speed limit systems. So it's not like it's not being used anywhere. It is being used. It's starting to get adopted. Something but, you know, people to. should not speed. That's always been true. Well, unless there's no one on the road. People should not speed. Yeah. There have been laws against it longer than you would expect. Uh, I'll get to that later. We'll get to uh, that later. Okay. We'll get to that later. Um, well, you want to talk about that now? We can talk about no, it. I, no. I, all right, go ahead. I, I never want to talk about it. Well, I'm just uh, trying no, to help no, you no, out no, there. Let me get there. All right. So here's your point. All right. There was, you know, we're not going to get into politics, but the fact of the matter is that the Times in, in writing about, you know, is there a path, this is their, their words, a tenuous path to criminal case against Trump. It's an odd use of words. So they're evaluating the path to a criminal pay, case against Trump. And at one point in the article, uh, you know, based on the January 6th hearing evidence, and at one point in the article, they say, well, you know, have there ever been a criminal case against a president? Uh, the answer uh, is this. There have been a couple of criminal cases that are at least initiated against vice presidents 
that didn't go anywhere for various reasons. One is Aaron Burr and the other is Spiro Agnew. But the one case of criminal case against a president was a case against Ulysses S. Grant. While president, he was arrested for speeding in his horse and buggy. <laughs> Which is stunning to me. Was this for, in D.C.? I gave you everything I know. Okay. Okay. But the fact of the matter is, I didn't even know that there were speed limits for horses. And I guess there were. Variable or we're otherwise. We're learning a lot of things this weekend. I don't know. I don't think it was an LED sign. Arrested for speed. You know, and that never came up. How did we not know that? How Horse and buggy. Yeah. Okay. You got to be careful. All right. Just quickly, uh, if you're thinking about traveling... You may want to go to, uh, and you're going to Italy. If you're near Rome, you should go to uh, the Villa d'Este. It's an article in the uh, Wall Street Journal. I gotta say, Villa d'Este, one of my great, great gardens ever. And it's not about gardens; it's really about water fountains. And uh, it was uh, a um, uh, Villa, mansion, whatever you want to call it, uh, built uh, by uh, Cardinal Ippolito uh, d'Este in the 16th century. He was a cardinal. He had been hoping to be pope, but that was not really going to happen. And uh, he uh, ends up uh, in um, Tivoli and, uh, you know, his consolation prize perhaps for not being Pope, he was going to, he built, was building this fantastic estate uh, on the site of an old uh, Benedictine um, convent from the 12th century. And uh, it's uh, really kind of delightful and it's beautiful. And the fountains are just uh, terrifically innovative. I mean, but what impressed me the most was when I saw it, I was spending uh, part of the summer in Rome, uh, you know, taking uh, graduate courses in art history. And it wasn't this that long ago. It was like uh, 2007. And uh, June in Rome, super duper hot. Mm. Okay. And you just wonder, how did anybody survive back in the day? without air conditioning. Well, one thing people did was they would leave, you know, Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, when I say including emperors like Hadrian, had an estate uh, out in the same area. Um, and so that you'd get out of the country. But even once you're there, it's still hot in Tivoli. Mm-hmm. But when you walk out into these gardens mm-hmm. with all the fountains, it's like walking into a big air conditioner. Okay? Mm-hmm. Just, just the water trickling about, bubbling up, cools off the air. And it was completely delightful. So it's full of all kinds of fantastical things, you know, uh, different uh, pipes, organs that play, um, you know, uh, powered by the river water, etc. Little animatronic uh, things with birds and statues, you know, all these crazy gizmos. Uh, but it, mainly it's just the um, cooling uh, aspect of the water and the greenery uh, is just delightful. There's a wonderful section of it called the um, 100 Fountains. And uh, it's really more like 300 fountains. It's a, it's a, 
it's a row of uh, different things spurting water. And one row is pretty much all these kind of mask-looking faces. Actually, they look like dog's heads kind of spitting water at you. And they're just... Uh, so it's delightful. It's not pretentious. It's not, uh, you know... Um, uh, it's not pretentious. It's just wonderful to be there. The Villa d'Este. I hope to go back someday. All right. Uh, I can see that. Uh, that could happen. Um, all right. So a couple of movies. You know, I feel like I haven't heard anything about any movies that anybody's interested in seeing too terribly much. Um, and, um, and yet, I pick up the Times on Friday... And they have two uh, critics' picks, as you like to, uh, you know, uh, point out to me often. Uh, movies I didn't know anything about. And so the question Do is... Do they sound good? Yeah, well, yeah, sort of. Uh, one's called Lost Illusions. And it's based on a, uh, a book by Balzac. Uh, Adultery and Bribery in Balzac's 1800s Cautionary Tale just as apropos today. And it's exactly what you'd expect. It's somewhat a costume drama. But, uh, and you'd never expect this to get a really good review. And it's not like there are people who are, you know, who you know in it necessarily. Um, and yet, uh, A.O. Scott loves it. Here's what he says. Lost Illusions is sensational. Nobody paid me to say that. Well, actually the Times did. But you should believe me anyway. How do you like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's uh, a whirring machine for the delivery of ideas about human behavior and the workings of a society obsessed with money, status, and appearance, as well as money. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know what to make of it. I, had you heard about this at all? Lost Illusion? Do you know the book? Uh, no, I don't think I do. And in some ways, a very old-fashioned, supremely French movie full of costumes and quill pens, sex and speechifying, and stylish acting, even in the smallest roles. It's in French with subtitles. All right. Uh, I can see seeing that. Okay. All right. And here's something which you're going to tell me I have to watch on my own. But it's a critic's a pick. It's called Hustle. And it's about basketball. A sports drama about a guy who's trying to make it to the NBA and the coach is trying to bring him to the NBA. And again, you'd say, well, haven't we seen this movie a hundred times before from, you know, Rocky-type stories to after-school specials uh, starring uh, Juancho Hernan Gomez, who uh, played for the Knicks for a while and plays in the NBA somewhere else now. I don't know where. I think he's still in the NBA. And his coach is Adam Sandler. And I'm saying to myself, an Adam Sandler movie <laughs> about a basketball player. And again, uh, the critic, uh, in this case, Eamon Nicholson, loves the movie. Um, and it says, avoids all the cliches of sports movies. Um, it's on Netflix. So there you go. Hustle. Okay. Am I going to get you to watch that with me? No. <laughs> I, I sort of doubt it. All right. All right. I don't play. You did very well with Bob Dylan, but I, I don't know. All right. So here's the, the one other thing that struck me. I'll just mention it. It's in uh, a story about books. And it's uh, it's about a, a book that's written by a person named Ada Calhoun uh, about the efforts of her father 
to write a biography of the poet Frank O'Hara. She goes to the basement. She finds some notes about the biography. It never got written. Why did it not get written? And that becomes a book. But here's what's interesting. The article is by a woman named Casey Schwartz. Do you remember when Jonathan Schwartz talked about the birth of his daughter? Yeah. Remember what he named her? No. Oh, he named her after Casey at the bat? Yeah, he named her Casey. <laughs> he might have named her Casey after Casey Stengel, but he named her Casey. Mm-hmm. And we all had a big laugh about that at the time. So here we go. Casey Schwartz is clearly the same person. So I just thought that was worth bringing up. Okay. All right, go ahead. On to bigger things. Well, I have a couple of things here. Yeah. One is a little uh, mention from the uh, historically speaking writer, Amanda Foreman. Yeah. About the modern flush toilet and its ancient origins. Yeah, I saw that in the Hotel Elise. There was a modern flush toilet with ancient origins at one point. But yes, go ahead. What? It was- there was a there was a, a commode that was near on the second floor that I said this the hotel was stored in nineteen twenty six this is a nineteen twenty six toilet but in any event I'm, I'm interrupting well the story. it's just one of those articles you're drawn to because the first sentence is defecation is a great equalizer okay keep going as the sixteenth century French Renaissance philosopher Michel de Montaigne put it trenchantly in his essays kings and philosophers shit. So do ladies. Yeah, I, I think I understood that before you read that quote. Well, yes. okay, just to, just to I, remind I you, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, yet if each person is equal before the loo, not all toilets are considered equal. So she goes through the history. It turns out that, uh, you know, uh, toilets go way back uh, yeah. as far as uh, 2500 B.C. Uh, wealthy Mesopotamians could boast of having pedestal lavatories and underfloor um, pipes that led to cesspits. Really? Yes. Um, also in the Indus Valley, the Harapans uh, had, uh, you know, drainage systems that even ordinary dwellings, not just castles, uh, had uh, drainage. Um, the, you know, there's always the story of the Minoans with the first flush toilet, I've also heard that's not really true. That uh, what uh, pe- what uh, archaeologists looked at and thought might be a flush toilet, uh, really, if you look at the physics of it, it wasn't. Uh, so there is that. We know about the Romans, mm-hmm. right, and their public toilets. They were all about the public toilets. And you'll see these in the ruins, these rows of seats mm-hmm. um, along, uh, uh, sitting above a, a kind of a um, running water situation with a little slot for you to hold it would have a stick with a sponge on it that you would dip in vinegar to Uh, wash yourself off they didn't have toilet paper yet obviously um and you know then she goes on to tell some fun stories about uh uh, including in 1184 the erfurt latrine disaster um which involved a royal gathering at the Petersburg Citadel, uh, and in an ancient hall that was built over the city's latrines, mm-hmm. um, the floor collapsed, and everybody at the meeting um, plunged down. Oh, uh, some people to their death oh, okay. in the cess pit, um, and uh, you know, um, I guess uh, Queen Elizabeth had a flushable toilet in 1596. 
The only problem was they didn't become popular because the smells would come right back up the pipes, right? Okay. But then um, the Scottish inventor Alexander Cumming, you think he's related to? No. Okay. I don't know. But um, invented that S-shaped pipe yeah. that uh, keeps the smells from hopping back up. I mean, it's all, it's all very, uh, you know. Kind of fascinating. It says that the uh, United States was late to get into the toilet game. Mm. Okay. Um, they made up for it. The first U.S. patent for a toilet um, didn't come about till 1857. Okay. So that's a long distance between the Mesopotamians and in 2500 B.C. and uh, 1857. Mm. You know. um, but uh, as late as 1940... Some forty-five percent of households in America still had outhouses. Yeah, that's what I've heard. That, that to me is the only thing that sticks. The, the patent thing, people could have had the toilets without the patents. But um, uh, yeah, I had heard that uh, people were using outhouses well into the twentieth century, and that the majority of Americans use outhouses well into the twentieth century, uh, which is consistent with what you just said. So that that is striking. I have you ever used an outhouse? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, you had something else. More Just, palatable. Uh, well, a little more palatable, but still, um, in some people's mind, pretty stinky. And that is Americans' use of garlic. Yeah. It took a long time. It's an article by B. Wilson, the food writer uh, with the Wall Street Journal, about how long it took Americans to come around to garlic. And uh, um, she quotes a, a, an American uh, cookbook from uh, 1796 um, where the um, author Amelia Simmons says garlics, though used by the French, are adapted to uses of medicine more than cookery. I'm, I'm sort of trying to figure that one out. Yeah, garlic okay. is more of a medicine than uh, really? than a flavoring. Okay, yeah, really? and uh, you know it was used very little uh, in American cooking um, until uh, until well until like the nineteen. 19- well, let me just say this. Uh, in 1944, yeah. this is not just Americans, it's also uh, the British. George Orwell yeah. notes that the British working class regard things as garlic and olive oil with disgust. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., the term garlic eater was a slur right. against Italian immigrants yeah. in the 20th century. Okay. Um as for Canada, the politician Dave Crombie recalled in an interview that before the 70s, before the 1970s, garlic was available only at one specific market in Toronto. One store in Toronto wow. was selling well, garlic. Okay? That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. Because we both grew up with garlic. And, uh, you know, and I've always seen these recipes. In fact, I have a recipe for fondue where, and it used to be the, the recipe for your salad. You would... You wouldn't put garlic in the dish. You would cut a piece of garlic and rub the raw garlic around in the wooden salad bowl. That's it. And uh, and uh, yeah, and that was supposed to give it some kind of flavor. The, the famous um, food writer Elizabeth David mm-hmm. remarked in 1955, uh, you know, um, when asked whether you know what's the effect of doing that. Um, could garlic give enough flavor 
by doing that rubbing thing. And she says, well, it depends whether you're trying to eat the bowl or the salad. Uh, well, the answer is uh, no. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's not until, uh, it's really between the 70s and the 90s mm-hmm. that um, garlic really jumps. From 1975 to yeah. 1994, garlic production triples from 140 million pounds to 493 yeah, million yeah. pounds. Part of that is, uh, you know, the guy in California who puts together the big garlic festival. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Except et for one thing. What? My mother, uh, in a Jewish household cooking in suburban Long Island in the 1960s, used garlic. And uh, I don't think she was really on the ramparts of any big developments. So. I think she was more sophisticated food-wise than you believe really clearly okay um and uh, i also think well they said that article says it's 140 they're selling 140 million pounds yeah. in 1970 it goes up from there all right so somebody is buying the garlic yeah. okay. all right it's all right. not that nobody is but it was you know it is funny and i still know people who my mother doesn't really eat garlic um you know mm-hmm. uh my sister-in-law doesn't cook with garlic and people some people still just think it's uh, a not a nice smell. And what do you do about garlic breath? And the article suggests that perhaps you, um, if you know you're going to have garlic for dinner, just make sure your partner yeah. is having garlic as well. And lastly, I will just say, yeah. and this, this I guess was in the 70s when we went to Austria, mm-hmm. Innsbruck. Mm-hmm. I ordered some soup. Mm-hmm. It was garlic soup. It was the best soup I ever right. had in my life. I right. said, what kind of soup is this? Because I didn't understand right. the menu. They said, it's garlic soup. And I was like, okay. Right. And from then on, I was a believer. Yeah, we've gotten the garlic soup. I was in garlic, ate garlic soup in Germany when I had that business trip a few years ago. We, we had a ton of garlic soup yeah. in the Czech, Czech Republic. Republic. Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. But this was back when I was a kid. All right, All right so finally... Uh, there's an article apropos of nothing. Uh, well, it's about sports writing. Roger Angel passed, and there's been a lot of writing about sports writing generally. And there you have a quote here from an article written by Shirley Povich. Do you know Shirley Povich? Yes. Okay, good for you. Shirley Povich was a great sports writer, the father of? Maury Povich. Maury Povich, exactly right. And, uh, you know, the Washington Redskins were often criticized for having, frankly, a bad history in terms of racism. Uh, and this was not a secret some years ago. I think they were a little slow to have uh, African-American players on the team. Didn't go unnoticed by Shirley Povich. And here's a quote, uh, a piece from a Shirley Povich article about uh, the great Jim Brown scoring on the Redskins. Here's the quote. From 25 yards out, Brown was served the ball by Milt Plum on a pitch out. And he integrated the Redskins goal line with more than deliberate speed, perhaps exceeding the famous Supreme Court decree. Brown fled the 25 yards like a man in an uncommon hurry. And the Redskins' goal line, at least, became interracial. So there you go. Right. Shirley Povich. Uh, all right. That's all we've got, which is uh, a lot. And uh, we'll see you next week. This is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger with Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. Bye.